Hello, and welcome to the Modern Maker Podcast. Today is Thursday, August 16th, 2018, otherwise known as National Tell-A-Joke Day. I'm Chris Salamone from Forest Furniture, and with me as always are Mike Montgomery from Modern Builds and Ben Ueda from Homemade Modern. What's up, guys? Hey, everybody. What's up? Happy to be here. Chris, what's your joke? Okay, this is a cheesy one. Ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I got really into pretending I was a flamingo for a while. I was great at it. Eventually, my wife told me to knock it off, so I had to put my foot down. Uh, Can you answer the rim shot right there, actually? Yeah, I already did it. That's, 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 <laughs> that's perfect. That's a, very, that's a very solid dad joke. Yeah, I even very threw solid. in a little bit of a laugh track for you. So there nice. you go. Nice. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. All right. So uh, what are you guys working on? So for those who don't know and for those who didn't listen last week, Ben and I went to New York along with Jordan, the uh, fourth member that we're starting Maker Brand with. And we kind of went to, I guess, what would be sort of a workshop. I hate the word seminar because that's not quite what it was. It was more just no. like a like a group class session, if you will, with Gary V and people of VaynerMedia talking about different kind of social media strategies, marketing, and just like business stuff. It was a lot of fun. Uh, what did you think of it? What was your big takeaway, Ben? Because I know quite a few people have been asking about it. It was great. Um, I'm pretty skeptical of those things because I think most of the information is readily available. And it isn't about knowing the right things to do. It's about having a plan and the resources and time to actually implement them. And I think it's much more locally specific than it is just having, here's this great social media playbook. That being said, I've been a, a fan of Gary Vee for a while. And we basically worked out sort of a barter deal where we're going to design some furniture and he's going to do some stuff with us on some sort of uh, media capacities. And we also got to go to this uh, this workshop for free, which is normally pretty pricey. And there's a lot of people from uh, both sort of medium and large corporations there. We were sort of the only people there that were kind of in sort of influencer media. So it's a group of about 12 of us around the table, probably about three or four at a time from Gary's team. Uh, we spent about a good two hours with Gary himself, and yeah, it was it was great. I don't think there was no light bulb moment. There was nothing that he dropped that was singularly brilliant, but it was a great one-day crash course in best practices, and it was, if not always illuminating, it was reassuring to know that a lot of the things we were doing, these teams that do it at the highest sort of professional level are also doing it and have a similar outlook on the social media landscape. I think the the sort of big takeaways, and I think what Gary is so good at is is simplifying everything. And he makes it as simple as like, you know, a lot of people tell you about how to build audience, or they talk about building audience, building audience, building your brand. I like that he goes more about watch where people's attention's at and then go meet them at that intersection, right? So watch what people are doing and he showed this great series of images actually someone from his team did this great slideshow and it was sort of showing about where companies sort of misspend their media dollars and it was all these pictures of people standing in like Times square but looking on their phone mm-hmm. or like on a subway and there's like ad banners all around them but what are they looking at their phone right right and so from where he's coming from he, you know there's people from like major corporations like Anheuser-Busch and stuff there. And these companies are still spending a lot more money on those types of things and probably a little bit less money proportionately on digital, particularly uh, mobile digital uh, advertising. So 
those are things we already know as people that are producing content for not just the small screen in terms of TV, but the smallest screen in terms of mobile and, and laptops and such. So that was a little bit of preaching to the choir. But th he also brought up some some things that you know I hadn't thought of so much and that were really relevant to Maker Brand, particularly in terms of paid media. We sort of all produce content that, that gets views and viewership organically. But if you're these other companies, you're buying media. And so a lot of his talk and strategy is around finding the cheapest ways to sort of purchase attention um, and sort of comparing, you know, he was preaching that how undervalued Instagram stories are as a sort of an advertising platform. So that's not something that's directly applicable to me as an influencer, but it's something that definitely perked our eyes up for when we're trying to get the word out beyond our audience for Maker Brand. Right. Totally. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. And like what you said, Ben, there wasn't that like aha moment, but it was kind of reassuring seeing the way that all these people that, you know, do marketing full time, whether it's influencer marketing or traditional stuff, laying out the groundwork of a content strategy of having your big hero content that you're able to produce maybe every quarter or a couple times every quarter that you're really putting in a lot of effort creatively and then from a production standpoint, but showing how if you're only going to rely on that hero content, there's a lot of gaps in between, whether it's time or kind of that tertiary content that you can produce. So like with us, these big projects that we're doing, like for me, this live edge table that's taken basically two, two and a half weeks to produce from inception to getting the video completely done. And Ben, with you working on the tiny house and even Chris, like doing the outdoor series of projects, these big keystone things that we do for the quarter, it's kind of cool how they're able to sort of show how you can lay out the groundwork of like a foundation of content that's ultimately supported. Well, more it's more supporting that content rather than being supported by that content. Um, so, you know, you're doing those big pieces of content, but then you're also able, able to kind of keep your audience engaged weekly with kind of normal builds and, and the week-to-week -week content that we're able to make and then connect to people on different platforms, whether it's having, you know, Instagram stories every day and then posting real Instagram posts every day or two. And then, you know, even below that is we have, you know, this podcast as its own kind of support network for what we're doing and being able to kind of reach people on more of an individual level and have people's attention for longer. They're laying all of this out and it's basically what we're doing off of instinct and kind of off of our own best judgment. So it's really cool to see that what the what brands are paying a lot of people to produce is what we're producing, but we're just doing it for ourselves and we're doing it independently. So really reassuring. And New York was cool. We're only there for a day, but it's pretty sweet. Chris, what yeah. do you got? Well, I was going to ask you guys, so did the other people that were attending, did they find out about you guys and like ask, did they have questions for you? Like, did you guys become, uh, I don't know, like the representatives of the influencer, of influencer community? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And, and there, there was, the way it was sort of run, there was a series of segments that were all about 60 to 90 minutes and then gary sort of does his two hours of sort of hanging out sitting at the table with us and he sort of asks us about what we're working on and sort of brainstorms with us and stuff like that yeah a lot of the other people that were there that i think paid quite a bit of money to be there had questions for us of just how we work with uh you know different companies and what those sort of deals look like mm -hmm. i think it's something for anyone sort of getting fomo or anything like that about it i think if you're a a mid-size, like a $50 million or, or up sort of revenue type company a year, it would make sense to send someone from your marketing team there because 
that will get a lot of really good scrappy tactics. Mm-hmm. I don't think that uh, for individual or small businesses, you know, kind of under that, the price would justify what you would get out of it. Right. But I think what what it it's great at doing is sort of uh, he's really good at looking at the undervalued media assets and you know sort of breaking sort of typical marketing practices for doing that. Now the the other thing that I got asked a lot on uh, Instagram was you know oh is he is he the same in person as he is and he is he uh, he is super energetic incredibly passionate and the thing I, I my my sort of takeaway and what I find most expi- inspiring about him is his sort of vulnerability so he'll go out there and say my goal is to own the New York Jets. Now, it's a really good chance he'll never own the New York Jets, not just because it takes a lot of money, but you also have to get approval and it's very political and all those things. Has to be up for sale. And most people that are public don't, they try to hide, they try to reduce. Right, they try to hide it so they looks like they fail very rarely. And what I appreciate him is that he uses that as his own internal motivation. And he's in it for the love of the game. And And like, you know, I think it's really more about his own utilization and he just loves playing it. He gets really excited about. Uh, you didn't have to. It, it didn't feel like he had to fake any interest in what we're doing. He just likes this stuff. So, you know, much like how a Jimmy DeResta, if you're playing with popsicle sticks and a glue gun, he'd be interested in what you're making. If you're doing anything business related, this guy's interested in getting down and understanding. Okay, what's this? What's the core concept of what you're working with? What are the key players? How do we improve it? What career range? What do you double down on? What do you give up on? And things like that. So uh, that part was really just fun and energizing and encouraging. You know, I kind of like to put out some of my bigger ambitions before they're completely done as, you know, in a similar kind of motivating way. You know, with the tiny house, it's kind of like that, although it's it's too big of a project to kind of like hide <laughs> until it's all perfect <laughs> and, and finished. But that part, I think, you know, just seeing how sort of passionate and, and genuine he was about those things was, was a lot of fun. Totally. Chris, what have you been working on, though? What are we building? Building. So I uh, finished off, well, almost finished off the thing that I was talking about last week, the stack of plywood coffee table with hidden storage and everything. I just have some extra little touches that I want to put onto it to kind of like sell the fact that it's supposed to look like a palletized stack of plywood. Other than that, oh, so remember last week I was talking about the Lego video, how it came out of the gates really slow yeah but like all of a sudden this weekend it like got life breathed into it or something i don't know like all those things that i was looking at where like people seem to really be liking this but like it's not getting the views that i was expecting all of a sudden it just like took off can definitely see that it's like reaching a different audience than what my normal stuff would reach like it's funny there's a bunch of comments that are like i've never even heard of a river table like this yeah. is actually exposing people to what like, you know, regular glass and wood or or resin or any of the other river tables like they had never seen them before. So it's actually exposing new people to river tables, which is kind of funny that the first river table they'll ever see is a concrete Legos. Lego <laughs> river table. That's really interesting. So uh, I'm not going to draw conclusions, but I am curious about like what maybe made that shift or if it was just kind of one of those things that it just took a little while for people to kind of start clicking. But am I right in saying you changed the title of the video, right? I did, but like really early on, like oh, when okay. it was still struggling right out of the gate. So I don't think it was that because I think it it was getting even when I was so even when I was like trying to like change things around, the views that it was getting were really quality views. Like it had really good watch time. 
had great thumbs up to view ratio. All the comments were really positive. So like I knew people were liking the video. Everything I was hearing back from people was like, hey, this is a really cool video, awesome project, blah, blah, blah. So I think that maybe there's just times where for whatever reason, it, it takes a while for that to synthesize into like actually getting, I don't know, pushed out or promoted. Like we always talk about, you can guess at the algorithm all, all day long. I think at the end of the day, your best bet is make good stuff and that will most of the time get rewarded. And I don't know, sometimes it takes longer than, than others to, to get rewarded, I guess. Totally. Well, I'm glad it's popping off because it was a really good video. If no Thank one's you. watched it, go watch it. Check it out. Awesome. Ben, what's up, my man? Just uh, working in the desert. So it was funny. Actually, today I, I'm still in this sort of metal and sort of cutting and welding the containers to, to make all the openings for the windows. And I was sort of curious on how much water weight I was losing every day. So I weighed myself this morning, you know, right, right before I headed out to the construction site. And, you know, with all my gear and, you know, work clothes on, weighed about 180. And by this afternoon, and this was a pretty short work day too, because we had to come back and, and record. I lost about eight pounds. So mm. I think every Ooh. day, you know, and I'm drinking probably two or three bottles of water over the course of a eight to 12 hour workday. You know, just sort of like the normal, what are they like sort of 16 ounce? Yeah, 16 ounce bottles of water. So probably drinking like two to three of those. It's so hot, especially inside the containers. It's probably about 125, 130 degrees. And then you got welding gear on on top of that. So just trying to survive and uh, not die. <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like, it, uh, it, it's, I was going to say, it's like you're cutting weight to fight GSP or something. But actually, every, every single day, though. <laughs> yeah, you got to fight every day. Hey, you never know when you're going to get called up to the big show. Um, have you had, because I remember like last week when you were first starting to cut the areas for the windows, how you were talking about like there's a lot more pressure on this, like, oh man, do not mess this up. Have you had any moments so far where you felt like you've like messed something up? Um, it's just hard to know when you're done, right? So for some of these things, like we have the structural drawings, which show exactly where all the two by fours and the, the structure of the building is wood. It's not actually the containers mm -hmm. because the container part is used as the exterior cladding. And so you really wouldn't want a building uh, where this the, has an exterior, sort of an exoskeleton. Because if that, let, let's say somebody didn't take care of the building and it started to rust, not very likely in this kind of dry climate, but still possible, you would never want the structural elements to be exposed to that kind of just weather deterioration because then the whole building would collapse. Right. So even though the built the exterior, you know, steel shell is strong enough to hold up everything, you can't rely on that technically for a submittal for building permits. So as an interior wood structure, I'm not too worried about, you know, cutting too much or anything like that. It's really just about am am I doing enough? And so with the after cutting holes into the containers to make the windows, I then re-weld a, a rigid steel, tube steel frame into it. And you don't need to do continuous seams or weld all the way around. You really just need to tack it into a few places and then you, know, you can silicone caulk with a paintable caulk uh, for the rest. And it's actually not a great idea to, to weld it continuously because all the heat from the welder can kind of warp the corrugation and cause it to sort of take a different shape. Mm. That being said, as uh, still a relative novice to welding, 
it's hard to know when you're doing enough. <laughs> so I have a lot of different length welded seams along the perimeter of these things, and I probably definitely overwelded them just because of that. So it's more just not having the the reps to have the the clear definitive you know judgment to know exactly when I'm done. So I just keep sort of going, going. Does that look enough? Look at look online at some other pictures of how other people have done it. Okay, maybe add a few more. So I think I'm starting to get faster as I'm going, or hopefully, because I'm running out of time, versus the the deadlines that Home Depot has given me. It's 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 getting there, but no no miscuts. I mean, not any that are visible. For the floor joists where we're running all the plumbing and that stuff, it's a it's a chaotic mess. But that's all getting covered by the subfloor anyway, so it doesn't matter. The cool the cool thing about buildings as opposed to furniture is that buildings are made through layers. So the internal layers, you can be really sloppy with. If you've ever gone and see the way uh, carpenters frame a house with like wood members, it's pretty messy. They're shooting nail guns at all angles and stuff like that. It's just, Get it's fast. It's, everything's designed for speed and just approximate precision. And then it all gets covered with finished layers and shimmed out and all that. So it's pretty messy and sloppy craftsmanship underneath everything. But, you know, hopefully we'll be able to bondo finish weld caulk and then paint everything to the point where it looks nice and pristine mm. and to throw it back and by work clothes you mean vans right yes yeah. <laughs> does anybody rag on you at the construction site they're, they're all pretty different. well most you know two of the guys wear shorts and then one of the guys wears long pants and long sleeves so it's sort of a pick your poison you either get blasted by the sun if you're working outside, so you want to kind of cover up and protect just from the direct glare and getting burnt to a crisp. Uh, but then you're you're retaining more heat to your body from the ambient sort of air temperature. So it's it's do you want to be sunburnt or do you want to be extra hot and sweaty? Is anybody anybody else have a mullet hat besides you? They all have like different strategies. So one guy has like a really big, you know, wide brimmed straw hat. One guy wears a baseball cap backwards that sort of does it. And the other guy is just like, he kind of looks like Joe Rogan. He's just kind of like short and rugged looking. And he's almost purplish from like working outside so much. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's dark. He's like, but it's like, it's got this just sort of sunburnt tint to it. The crew that we have working there is, is, is awesome. And they are just tough and rugged and they just embrace it so the first few days when you you ever been where you're like working you kind of start to feel like gross and like your your forehead is all kind of sweaty and you don't really want to touch anything or your shirt sticking to you mm. and it's just a miserable feeling but then after a while you just get used to it and you don't even you don't even notice it they're yeah. so far past that um <laughs> and I'm, I'm sort of getting to that place too where you just sort of embrace the suck and just deal with being gross for you know a good eight to twelve hours a day I'll shower when I die. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the shower at the end of the day is pretty glorious. Oh, big time. So I'm happy to announce, guys, the What's Live it? Edge Epoxy Table is going live this Thursday, the day the podcast is airing. It is live. It is live. And I want to say shout out to all the podcast listeners. I got a bunch of suggestions for what I should name it. And I got a real, gl- I got a glorious one. Let's hear it. It's the cookies and milk table. The co- oh, that's not bad. Yeah. The cookies and milk table. I like it. I mean, it makes sense on a few levels. One, it's just the perfect color with the like olive wood slabs. It looks like cookies. 
But mm-hmm. whenever you cut slabs into rounds, it's also kind of like slang to call them cookies, or at least where I'm from. So yeah, the slabs themselves are called cookies, so it's perfect. It's like a giant square bowl of cookie crisp. That's exactly what I said, too. Yeah, I was like, cookie crisp. <laughs> perfect. Yeah. But, uh, so I'm really excited that that one's coming out. I got the opportunity to unveil the Maker Brand Penetrating Oil Finish that we are launching next Thursday, August 23rd, which is the official Maker Brand Co. launch. It should be National Maker Brand Co. Day. It will be. Yeah, that's it will the, be. That's the fake holiday. <laughs> Hello and welcome to yeah. blah, 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 blah. Remind Perfect. me to do that on the 23rd. That's right. So I've gotten a lot of cool feedback on Instagram. Seems like people are very hyped for it. Um, people asking me, like, can you ship to Australia? Can you ship to Canada? Can you ship, you know, all over the place, Germany, yeah. everywhere. So we we do have international shipping. It's probably going to be a little bit more expensive, but, you know, that's that's how the world works. Um, so we're excited to get pe- get it out there to people. And we want to hear feedback next week when everything goes out. If you order some finish, if you order some clamps, uh, once that stuff gets to you, let us know what you like about it. Let us know if you hate it. Let us know if you love it. Absolutely. I will say I've actually gotten a few people. People have been starting to receive their clamps now. So I have gotten a few messages from people and they've been really positive so far. So it's awesome to hear. Feels feels good to hear that. Absolutely. So yeah. And don't forget, tag us, tag Maker Brand Co. on Instagram, tag us individually. Like we really want to, we really want feedback because that's the only way we know if what we're doing is, you know, people are really liking or if if we should change things. So thank you for the feedback. Other than that, I will be heading to somewhere in Ohio. I think it is Columbus to be collaborating Mm -hmm. with Urban Timber on the tables that Ben and I will be building for Gary V as part of that kind of bartering agreement that we made uh, that you referenced. So on Instagram, whenever we kind of posted some selfies and some stuff with Gary, the guys at Urban Timber, who ironically enough, I've been following for probably like a year, year and a half, hit us up and basically said, if you guys want some slabs, we'd love to be involved and followed up kind of with some pictures of some really great ash slabs that are very long. We're going to be building a conference table that's 12 foot by 4 foot, and then another one that's 12 and a half by 3 feet. Big tables. Whenever they hit us up, we we're basically like, we're building really big tables, but if you've got the slabs for it, and if you want to be a part of it, and be a part of the video, and be able to, you know, collaborate, you know, on Instagram and all that kind of stuff with it, we'd love to do it. So Ben is going to be pretty busy, buckled down with a tiny house. So I'm going to head out there. Uh, they're already surfacing the slabs as we speak. That way they have a couple days to get any kind of movement that's going to happen after they have been surfaced out of the way. But after that, I'm going to go out there, glue up the tabletops, fill any of the voids kind of with some epoxy and get everything stabilized. And then flatten them back out because they've got a really huge, I think it's a 12-foot or a 16-foot bed surfacing CNC. So I'm really excited to see see their kind of process from, you know, what we're doing, which is mostly kind of DIY at home kind of stuff to a full production situation. It'll be cool seeing the the ways that they're able to cut down hours of labor here and speed up processes there. They're all really nice dudes. So if you are in Ohio, Columbus area, Friday night, we're throwing a little get together at Shindig. Yes, a Shindig if you will. We're throwing a Shindig at Urban Timbers warehouse shop. So come on by, look on my Instagram at Modern Builds. I'll have a flyer, they'll have a flyer. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, and check out their Instagram. It's a great feed, and it's urban without an A. So just U-R-B-N Timber. 
really interesting feed. And what I think is exciting about this project is that it sort of, on one hand, you know, what, what Mike and I do is more on the DIY side. What they do is more on the sort of high-end kind of professional woodworking. They got a big shop, expensive tools that wouldn't be available to the DIY. But this this project actually presents an interesting way to sort of collaborate because, you know, one of the things we like about working with them for the project that's going for Gary V's new LA office is that I did a startup comp, uh, a conference table for startups before, and I did and I wanted to show that you know a lot of times when people start a new company they make their own office furniture. It's very DIY. It might just be a few people, some sawhorses, and a couple doors. So I showed it a slightly nicer way to do this. This is almost like one step up from that. If you were to go out and to buy like a, you know, a, a solid hardwood live edge slab conference table, 12 feet long, four feet wide, probably going to cost you like 20 to, if, if not more, about $20,000. So what we're showing is how do you could you know, make the base yourself, maybe DIY just the base, and then order a really nice, like, finish top from pros like this. And it'll still be more than kind of just using plywood or doors, but it'd be that good sort of intermediary or intermediate level of, of a conference table. So you could still do it for way cheaper than commissioning custom, yeah. but still get the high-quality top. Totally. Spend 2500 on materials and get a $20,000 product out of it. Sweet. You guys already figure out what you're going to do for the base? Are you guys doing metal? Oh, yeah. So I'm going to be doing a sheet metal base, or I guess a plate steel base. I keep calling it sheet metal. I probably quarter inch thick. If any metal workers out there are listening and thinking that I'm making a bad decision, please let me know. Um, but if you watch the live edge table that will be going out you know, today, I used plate steel to make the base on that. It was a really simple idea. I basically cut two pieces of plate steel to make a base that's cross-shaped that's kind of extruded vertically and I used half lap joints in the plate steel to interlock everything so that I could just run a couple of really small beads basically tack welds at the very top of the base to keep everything rigid but those joints are kind of what serve to keep everything parallel and in plane um, and like I mentioned you know whenever we were talking our half year roundup on the new year's resolutions we did or that we made yeah. and how are we following up on them uh, it was a good reminder that, you know, whenever I explore a technique or an idea, whether it's design or process oriented, I need to go that extra layer. So I'm going to be doing a plate steel base, but rather than, you know, on the scale of a coffee table, this one will be a gigantic conference table. So same basic techniques, but different scale and different application. Very cool. As for me, I'm still figuring that out. I got a a difficult idea and a safe idea. I, I hate ch taking the safe route, but uh, given the sort of time constraints of the unsafe giant shipping container house project, I'm probably going to do something pretty pretty basic. <laughs> but I think I'll sort of lean into that kind of, hey, DIY the base, go with pros for the, the wood top as like a great way to sort of get value out of a, out of a DIY conference table. So probably nothing too spectacular. Uh, I've been having good results with our with our new Fournay welders. They've been awesome forever. You know, I'm actually just launching a steel version of the lounge chair uh, today. So be sure to check out the Homemade Modern YouTube channel. Smash that <laughs> like and subscribe button if you haven't already. Uh, probably just something simple and, and welded. I might try, I don't know. I haven't really figured it out yet. But I'm sure it'll be when you have a really nice wood top, I, it's funny. I looked at it on a whole bunch of Pinterest boards for just conference tables, wood top, metal yep. base, 
the ones that I actually like the best are the simplest. Yeah. The, there's there's a lot where they're they're trying really hard and then they're welding on bolt heads to make it look like an old, you know, gusseted or, or, or riveted bridge truss kind of thing, mm-hmm. and it just ends up making the bases look really heavy. So, it's I kind of think if you have the the, the, the great piece of wood, it's like let your design ego just do the thing that makes sense. So, yeah, especially when you're building such a large table, the scale itself of it is also impressive. It adds to the whole mystique of it as well. So Right. Also, when people get too sculptural with bases, they often forget that chairs have to go underneath them. <laughs> yeah. and, it can, yeah. and it can it can lead to some pretty awkward sort of, you know, especially at the ends of tables, you know, really making sure that that, you know, if the, ta- if the if the legs aren't all the way at in at the corners, they have to be about twenty four or, or or more to, or thirty inches in, so that there's actual room for a seat in there. If they're just about one foot in from the edges, that can look great, but that means you've basically eliminated uh, uh, the seats, you know, the side seats on the end. So right. trying to just balance all those things, and that's probably leading me to do a pretty no nonsense, straightforward build. Awesome. Well, we've got a great topic sent to us from a listener. Ben, I think you've got that screenshotted for us. Do you mind reading it? Yeah, so in keeping with the sort of Gary V themed all about business and crushing it kind of uh, mentality. <laughs> Hashtag crushing it, right? Yeah, we th- I thought we would take a couple sort of business-related questions. Uh, we, we try not to answer too many of these because they can get very specific. And, you know, it's something that we like talking about amongst ourselves, but... We know that for the sort of broader maker audience, for a lot of people, this is just a hobby. But in light of what we've been talking about earlier, we thought we'd knock out a couple of these. So this is from Instagram and a user called A Weird Guy. That's it. <laughs> it's not your take on him. That's yep. him calling himself that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Cough button. So suggestion for an episode. From your experience as YouTube makers that do this full-time, what are all the revenue sources available? Ads, Patreons, sponsors, product sales, and others that are not so obvious. What percent of the revenue comes from each at each stage of popularity? Up to 5,000 subs, 50,000, 500K plus. I suspect all your listeners are makers, and a solid percent are either posting videos or considering it. Nobody ever talks about the money. It's, it's interesting. Quick, b- before you start, real quick comment. So do you guys get this when, you know, if you're meeting somebody that asks what you do or whatever, and you're like, oh, I make videos, and then YouTube comes up and all that stuff, do they ask you, like, and you get paid for that? Oh, yeah. That's very, very common. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It depends on where I'm at. In California or, like, L.A., no. No one – people just oh, cool. They get it right away. Or San Francisco, same thing. People kind of understand digital media and how it adds value, I think, a little bit more. In Boston, I would get that a, a lot more often. Also, age, depending the age group of the people you're talking to. Yeah, I didn't say, I think age plays a big part in it. Well, I think the first thing that I would start is to saying our business isn't YouTube, and at least for myself, right? And I think that's the biggest mistake people make is they look at money coming from YouTube. In my mind... Uh, and in my experience, when I look at all the different people that are on YouTube and that are makers that produce some sort of video, in no way do I see that the amount of money that they're making is directly correlated to how big their audience is. Now, there is a general trend, um, but I know some people that are uh, you know, over 500,000 
subscribers that have just gotten started with sort of branded integrated sponsors and have just been relying on the AdSense. For me, is I've never really thought of YouTube as the business. For me, producing design-related video content is the business. Uh, if my whole business is YouTube, then I don't own my own business. I'm not that diversified, and I'm subject to the whims of you know a single company. Now it's a big part of it, uh, but you know Instagram. Pinterest, all those things are, and more importantly, now the biggest part of my business has nothing to do with publishing. It has to do with producing and providing content to brands that can then uh, publish on their own. So more than half my revenue has nothing to do with hitting that publish button on YouTube. So the if you think about the most valuable thing we do, and I've, I've probably said this before, you know, many times before, but the most valuable thing all three of us do and anyone that sort of produces video of, of anything is that we produce content that earns its views at a very inexpensive price because any brand or company that wants to make a video, if they go to a production company or an advertising agency, their quote just to make the video before it earns any views or even gets published are going to spend tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars so the most valuable thing we do isn't getting views it's in producing content that people would want to see at a low cost i always try to make it a point to be a pretty open book when people ask questions uh, especially i don't know if they're like legit curious about this stuff i don't mind talking about it so i'm going to take a stab at what my percentage breakdown is mm -hmm. and then you guys can see if it is in line with you i know we all have kind of different things me with patreon and all that but i will say about 10% of the money that I earn, maybe a little bit more than that. Let's say 15% of the money I earn probably comes from YouTube. Like you know, AdSense. just like AdSense. About another 15% from affiliate links. And then the other, the rest of that, so what would that be? The other 70%, so 35% and 35% would be from sponsorships and from Patreon. That's about what my breakdown is like. Yeah, I think mine would kind of parallel. I think the 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 kind of AdSense, the built-in money that you make from YouTube for me is probably right around ten to fifteen percent. Um, I think really the only place that we differ that much, Chris, is I think I do a little bit more branded content where you kind of are able to do, I guess, what that'd be audience-supported content with the Patreon. But right. I know that there are people that rely solely on the AdSense, but I think it's just, I think it's kind of silly because we're all producing content that is valuable to our audience and valuable to the companies that work for us. Um, mm -hmm. And as long as neither of those are detrimental to the other, um, I think it's, it's a good transactional thing. If you want quality content from Netflix, you're going to pay for it. If you want quality content on TV, you're going to pay for it. And the beauty of what YouTube is, is, you know, it's free content and it gives the content creators a platform to monetize it. So yeah, and this and this those relationships change, not just every year. They change, you know, every few months. Absolutely, the the landscape is is moving so fast, right? So, for example, like how long have has Instagram had Instagram Stories? It's a pretty new thing. Was that this year? It was probably it's probably coming up on like eight months to a year. Yeah, that's a whole new type of of inventory for influencers to to monetize. And is one that is, is is quite easy to monetize relative to permanent posts. So the landscape's always changing. There's community buttons and functions now in YouTube where you can share all sorts of things. 
Um, yeah. So there's also a, a there's there's different types of companies too. There's companies that want you for more branding and more of an association with their brand. And then there's mm-hmm. other companies that just want your audience. When a video game, you know, if you get like a, an offer from a company that's like marketing a video app, like Battleship, was it Battleships? Uh, Warships. Warships, yeah. right? They're not too interested in your sort of brand <laughs> association. They're interested in your audience and right. the, the fact that you perform well to your audience. So they're interested in you as as how you perform in front of your subscribers because they'll look at you know what your average view time is and all those things and they'll say hey these guys are really good at building an audience keeping their audience attention taking care of it not over exploiting it and it's a demographic that we want to reach exactly but they don't care the subject matter of what you're making or designing right they're just buying your airtime and that's that's even though it's on a new platform, it's still the old-fashioned model of just saying, like, buy people's attention. Let's just f- spend money to force away in front of them, and then we hope that our little sub-messaging is and our product is good enough to catch their attention. Yeah. Yep. It's the same thing as, like, having a commercial during a football game. It's like, oh, right. we mm-hmm. have a beer. Most people that like sports like beer. Let's put commercials there. Right. And that's because integration is hard, and it's hard to scale it. If you have a a separate, you know, advertising manager working with every single influencer to create the best sort of combination of audience to content to sort of integrate it seamlessly, you would spend so much time and ultimately not reach enough people for a company that really needs to move fast and, and grow quickly. So I, I get it. it. It makes a lot of sense. But that tends to be what what when people ask me these questions about YouTube and money, they tend to sort of really get fixated on the, the ad reads and the ad sense when again it's uh, particularly for what we do the there's sort of branding deals where your association with sort of who you are uh, is the thing that's sort of adding value to the company and uh, uh, a lot of those relationships might not ever show up dramatically within a youtube video but they can be some of the most lucrative things that being said i would say if how many views a month are you doing uh, uh, Chris, on average, uh, probably like eight hundred thousand, something like that. I have no idea. I'm bad with this kind and, of stuff. And what are you sort of at, Mike? Um, I'd probably say like one point eight million, maybe two. Yeah, that's a, that's about what I've been doing lately. So, you know, if if that's ten percent of your revenue, that's that's really good. Um, that means you're sort of on pace for you know a lot of money. <laughs> um. And you can, yeah. You know, everyone can sort of do their their uh, nap, napkin sketch uh, calculations there. It's not very useful to try to create a roadmap out of what somebody else is doing, because you don't. Those roadmaps show what they did. They don't always show what resources they already had or what connections they already had. Following someone else's roadmap isn't a very reliable way to to get farther along your own path to success. I would say doing a self-inventory makes a lot more sense where you look at what are my strengths, what are my connections, where do I have social or uh, professional equity built up with people that like me and that like working with me and that I, that can get me ahead. And then how do I put those things all into play and test ideas and see what works? Yeah. The, 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 people, that, the people that ask roadmap questions are... <laughs> A lot, you know, it's funny. At this Gary Vee thing, 
this these these guys from this like lumber company were saying, okay, so what proportion of money should I spend on Facebook versus Instagram versus YouTube? And they just want this like numeric answer of like, okay, right. you put this X dollars here and this X dollars here and this here, and then here's how the algorithm works. And then you gain that algorithm and then you precisely calculate it and then you hit the button and you make tons of money. Right. That's not how it works. And they said, no, you have to test it. You have to test things. There, you... So you really just have to look at uh, like the broad concepts of how people are doing and then experiment and look at what's working for you. And then, then you can be analytical about things that you've already conducted and you know all the answers and variables to. Yeah. You got me thinking now about like I'm, I'm picturing somebody asking me about this like as if they were kind of dipping their toe in the water for like, oh, is this something I should pursue as a career? And kind of like what you were just talking about, like you can definitely make legitimate money doing it. Like I I did not think I would be where I am at this point, you know, two and a half years after starting it. The thing is you're going to work a ton in the beginning for essentially free or very little. And what I would say at the end of the day, if I could boil it down into something really simple would be if you love doing it, it's a great job because it's fun and it's what you're interested in and you can make pretty good money doing it. But if you did not absolutely love it, it would be a terrible job because it's the kind of job that's going to take up so much of your time. Like it is not punch the, you know, nine to five. All right, now I'll go home and do everything else. Like it's every waking hour you're thinking about it or working on something or there'd be plenty of ways to have a better life and make better money if you didn't love doing this. Absolutely. It was funny whenever we were, I think it was either traveling to New York or back from New York. We were just kind of talking about the kind of initial grind that everyone goes through when they start a channel. And I don't remember exactly how many it was, but I think it was close to, it was between like 45 and 60 videos that I made before I hit a hundred thousand subscribers. Oh wow. And I have people emailing me, commenting all the time, like saying, Hey, I've been making videos, but it's just like, it just doesn't seem like it's working out or, you know, people are not happy with the speed that they're growing and all this kind of stuff. You know, people, people want, that early payout but what people don't see is the year that you work or the nine months that you're working or however long it is that you're just putting in the work and you're really not getting anything out of it other than kind of the fulfillment of what you're making and the content you're producing but I mean it was a year and a half maybe probably closer to a year that I was making videos every single week I didn't miss a week, basically. And it was, you know, a year, year and a half before I got a, got a sponsor. And so mm-hmm. when people want to when people want to be salty saying that I've sold out or that I've done this or that, good for you. Say it all you want. I know I put in the work that I wanted and I know I built the business the way I want it and I'm and I'm executing it the way that I want to. So that's what it is. It's just whatever you're in for, know that you're in it for the right reasons and always build the business for what fits your personality best. Kind of like what we were talking. Chris, you're great at building a community, engaging with people one-on-one, all that kind of stuff, and managing relationships, which is awesome for Patreon. Whereas I, I think I'm, a, I'm pretty good at networking and, and kind of finding new opportunities. Same with you, Ben. Whatever business you're in is just figure out how you can execute it in the way that's efficient and natural for you. Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of funny. Even on the flight to New York we were talking to the person that was the third person in our row and she did PR for like visual artists a lot of people that do 
um, kind of just like sculptural art and things like that. And we were just kind of chatting back and forth on what we do, you know, after we were in the plane for three or four hours, it was kind of to the point of like, okay, I think everyone's done being on their computer now. And so yep. it basically got to a point where we were talking about what we do and she saw Ben's, what was it, that kind of Victorian style armoire that you had turned into the robot garden. Yeah. Mm. And she saw that and she's like, oh my gosh, have you sold that or what did you sell it for and all that kind of stuff? He's like, well, no, it's kind of in my house. He's like, if you want it, you can have it. She's like, what do you mean I can just have it? She's like, I want to put this in a gallery. I feel like I could sell this for like 20000 Do it. And it's like one of those opportunities that come up when if, if you're naturally somebody that if you're sitting next to somebody and there's the opportunity to talk and chat and network and do this kind of thing, that's what happens. But if you're the type of person that's going to be a little bit more kind of reserved and, and in their work and kind of doubling down kind of in their own shop space and just being prolific in that sense – Figure out what opportunities come out of that situation. But it's just like leveraging what you're good at. If you're good at striking conversation and finding mutual ground and finding that opportunity to work with people, do it. And this is why self-experimentation and not looking at other people's roadmaps is really important. Yeah. Uh, recently, I was looking on Twitter and I saw David Picciuto, uh tweeted and then they ended up talking about it on, I think, the last episode of Making It. And he tweeted something about how he was looking at his analytics and... He was seeing that by far his most popular projects were shop projects. And now that mm. broke his heart a little bit because that's not where his creative interests are, are, are you know, most alive, I think, for yeah. lack of a better term. Because I think his shop, pro- his shop projects are actually really, really good. Um, I mean, a guy that has carpet in his shop is going to have some unique ideas about shop furniture. Right. <laughs> uh, so that, that example, right? So... When I made that sort of bookcase that transforms into a writing desk that has an actual living plant-filled garden in it, I had a feeling it wouldn't do that great on YouTube. YouTube likes pull-up bars and a lot of other things for me and just pouring molten metal into kinetic sand and Legos and concrete, all those mm-hmm. things that have done really well for me. But it's still not – it's not – self-indulgent only for me to do what I'm particularly interested in. It's also sort of creating things that maybe aren't popular in terms of viewership, but I'm still getting ideas out there that'll allow me to sort of step beyond doing like a whole bunch of birdhouse plants or anything like that. Right. So just because something isn't directly monetizable short term, or if you only if if you only look at analytics in terms of past performance it means you're going to get this really tight cluster of predictable stuff. Mm-hmm. And audience is good at showing what they like one thing versus another, but they're not good at predicting what they would like in the future. If you like imagine if movies did this. They're like, "Up, oh, Star Wars is popular. Let's just keep doing that." They would never make the Matrix, right? <laughs> uh, that is kind of what they do now. That's why everything's just like a sequel, sequel, sequel. Right. And then something, and then something like John Wick com- comes out, and like people are like, "Oh, I like this," and then people copy right. it, and then they get tired of those copies too. So, you know, it's funny. There's definitely some. There's a lot of times where I just publish a uh, a project because I had a, a simple idea. I don't think it's brilliant. I think it's fine. I think it's useful. Uh, and I do it, and I'll take that you know that brand read and that sponsorship money. I'll grab that cash, and I don't ever feel like <laughs> apologetic or bad about it. And when I get those comments about such a sellout and all those things, I'll be like, "Yep, this is how media works. It's almost always worked this way. There's advertisements in the first newspapers. If you don't understand it, 
you're dumb, and I don't really value your opinion in the first place. Because I also know, and, and I don't ever really worry about being a sellout, because if I was a sellout, I wouldn't be here in the first place. And what I, the only time I worry about selling out is not about what I do take or which brand deal I do agree to. I worry, to me, not being a sellout is about not doing the project you think is interesting that could open up doors for you in the future just because it's not going to be possible in the or, or or really valuable for you right away. Totally. So I'll know I'll start being a sellout when I don't do things I'm interested in because the audience might not get them. That's Correct. that's selling out, not grabbing the money because that money goes into those opportunities, right? Like movie directors do this all the time. Like they'll direct a couple, you know, big budget movies. So one of the best directors right, right now is Ryan Coogler, the guy that did Creed, uh, Fruitville Station, and then Black Panther. Phenomenal young director, super talented. He, he'll do some big budget movies, and then he'll do you know his, his own kind of agenda. And I think sort of balancing that, you know, bringing in assets in one allows you to do things there. And I, I try to look at what I'm doing holistically, and I will absolutely grab a whole bunch of cash when it's available. And then I'll build up a war chest, and then I'll do something that might be something only I like. But at least now I have the, the, the cash reserves to experiment, to hopefully invent, to fail uh, extravagantly and repeatedly and waste a bunch of stuff and, and learn. Um, but I don't just want to continue to analyze myself into a trap of repetition. I want to sort of grab resources, do big things, laugh about it, sh- share ideas with uh, uh, with an audience, and uh, just keep going bigger and bigger. Yeah, and to piggyback on that thought, like Chris, the Lego table that you just got done, it reminded me of that exactly, in that mm-hmm. if you were looking at your analytics, you know, and your analytics probably say build coffee tables and consoles and other kind of stationary furniture that's good plywood projects. Right. But yep. you went out on a limb, and did something that your built-in audience, your subscribers, it actually probably performed less yeah, I would say so. than it would have if you did a kind of like a, a quintessential Four Eyes project. Mm-hmm. But now that the video is taking off, it's growing a whole new subset to your audience that are interested in maybe a little bit more of a whimsical or experimental idea. Yeah, and sure. so doing those projects that are in left field allows you to do an even further left field project in the future. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to the idea of uh, Dave Picciuto not loving shop projects and all that kind of stuff, well, it's awesome that he just got done doing, like, that killer dining table with all kinds of different patterns and all this kind of stuff. That table is really good. Instead of just another shop project. Because, for one, I think that might be, that's probably, like, top three videos of his that that I've watched that I really enjoyed. But I'm sure that's going to open up doors to doing even more crazy kind of furniture patterns, really artistic things that... If you just built another shop cabinet, then you know that that extra step towards wherever you want to be on a creative level, you would have been one more step behind, and and that's all it is. Is you know if you're climbing a mountain, it's one rock at a time, and so uh, it, it, it's cool to see you know people people obviously doing what's working, but then doubling down and figuring out where they can experiment and be creative. Yeah, I think one of the things that holds. A lot of people I like, so half my friends are designers or artists and at least all people that sort of make things with their hands or design things. So there's people I went to like architecture school with that 
Um, and some of those are in more of like the, you know, they're into designing buildings. Other of them think that they're sort of into designing art. But none of them, not a single one, not the purest artist in the world is completely separate as totally 100% separated art and commerce. I don't know anyone that is entirely separated those two things. That's just doing things purely. It's always a mix. Now, people like to to define the the artist as being that mix, right? Oh, that guy's more commercial, especially when I talk to my friends. So, oh, I'm like, oh, do you like, uh, you know, uh, so and so? And they'll be like, oh yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of commercial. And the other people will be like, oh, he's awesome. And then like the hardcore people will be like, they can't like it because you know the the mainstream people like him. So. Everyone is a mix of art and commerce. And I think it's really to, to worry that every pro- product you, or everything you produce is the exact representative ratio of how you want the world to see you in that sort of relationship of art and commerce, I think is the mistake. Some of my things, I'm going to be totally uh, emphasizing the idea and not really even caring about whether or not it makes me money. Yeah. Other things I'm going to be doing are going to be completely about making money and have like a terrible idea in them, right? Like, uh, like the DIY fitness stuff. I really liked the fold-out CrossFit gym. I thought that was really clever. The pull-up bar. I just thought I was like, you know what? There's a lot of bros out there that want to get swole, and uh, let's let's throw let's let's throw them a bone here. You know, it's funny. So let's just say that you were a maker of things, not on YouTube, just building furniture for people. Do you think anybody would ever have that same thing of like, you know, some projects you're going to build and it's something that, oh man, I am really passionate about this piece. I got to design it. And other ones, it's just like they needed a kitchen cabinets. Yeah. Like those custom furniture makers, they're still going to do a built-in bookcase for like a high-end home when the opportunity comes along. That way, when they want to do a project on spec to fulfill their own creative kind of desires they confront the bill for it. So, yep. One for me, one for you. Exactly. Well, I like th- I like how straightforward you were with that, Ben. I like how you were you didn't go for the I was trying to be an ambassador to all the bros of the world and show them that yeah. they could build a pull-up bar and that could be just the start of their maker journey. I like Give that. me that cheddar. Yeah, it, yeah. It's like it's not that there's good guys and bad guys. Everyone or you know I mean, there probably are a few of those extremes, but most people are capable of good things and bad things. And it just depends on, you know, motivation and circumstances and on what sort of path they choose. We're all capable of great art and we're all capable of doing cool business stuff that makes us lots of money. Not everything we have to do has to be the perfect calculated representative sample of everything that we are. Absolutely. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I am not plugging the three of us on Instagram. Instead, I am going to highly, highly recommend that you go to at MakerBrandCo on Instagram. Like I mentioned earlier, we are launching next week. We have been working on this for probably seven, maybe eight months. You've heard it on the podcast. We've had those episodes where we've brought on Jordan, the guy that we're starting the whole company with, helping us with all of the back end. We've been teasing it along the way, and it is all coming to fruition. I'm so excited. Couldn't be more proud. Couldn't be more excited to be working with Chris and Ben kind of on this collaborative level. I think that's what's so amazing about this podcast is we're able to just like combine forces mentally and monetarily as well. It's something that probably (laughs) any of us individually maybe wouldn't have been as bold to go into, but kind of collectively, we're all building each other up, which is awesome. So that is at Maker Brand Co. and www.makerbrandco.com. Gotta spend that battleship money. (laughs) Warships, my man. Warships. You're thinking of battle tanks. That's right. Yeah. Or you're thinking of battle shots. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Exactly. So thanks again for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, this has been the Modern Maker Podcast. Bye, everybody. See ya. Bye.